When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Brown, the host of the channel, and currently I'm an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history, focusing on the environment and science. Today, we'll be talking to David B. Williams about his new book, Homewaters, A Human and Natural History of Puget Sound, published by University of Washington Press in 2021. David B. Williams, welcome to the show. Matt, it's a pleasure to be here on the New New Books Network. Um, I appreciate you reaching out and excited to share some stories. Perfect. I'm excited to to hear more about the book. Um, but before we we jump into into the the book itself, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, I grew up in Seattle, where I am based right now, and have lived here for most of my life. Spent a little bit of time in Utah, a little bit of time in Colorado. I have a degree in geology. Uh, my website, geologywriter.com, sort of gives you an idea of the way I see the world. I see it through a geologic lens. And for the last 25 years or so, I've more or less been a full-time freelance writer. And as a writer, I'm always interested in that intersection between people and place. How do we affect landscape and how does landscape affect us? And I've done this through a variety of um, news or magazine articles, a variety of books. Uh, most of my books have focused on the Seattle area. Uh, for instance, a book called Too High and Too Steep, Reshaping Seattle's Topography, looks at the big engineering projects in the city at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, uh, several just unprecedented changes to the landscape. Then I'm also interested in encouraging people to get out in the field. So I took some work from that book, from a previous collection of essays about natural history in Seattle, and produced a book called Seattle Walks. Probably figure out what it's about. It's 17 walks around the Seattle area, weaving together human and natural history. So it's you know, I take you out in the field, you know, sort of a, like go three blocks, turn left, stop here, look at this. Here's a, here's a little story about it. So I'm, it's that idea of helping people develop better connections, helping people and encourage, or I guess, encouraging people to slow down, be better observers, pay attention, ask questions, get outside, get to know a place. Because ultimately for me, I think what I'm trying to do is helping people understand the past to better understand the present and hopefully make informed decisions about the future. 
and always with that grounding in natural and human history and that and that connection. I think it's one of the things that I do that's a little bit different in thinking about um, being a historian. I really think of myself as a natural historian, as someone who's interested in the nature of a place and in the history of a place. And how can I tell those stories to help people better understand and, as I said, better connect to the landscape they live in? Yeah, and and that uh, idea I feel like echoes throughout throughout this whole whole book of uh, of of home waters um, in itself. Um, and and I, I I thought it was a very accessible book as well in terms of how it was just the, your narrative con- constructions and, and, and your, your, your voice. So I Thank think you. that probably shows out in the, the freelance writing part. Um, yeah. And, and that's definitely something, you know, it's e- even though the book is published by an academic press, which sometimes can produce books that are, uh, don't always flow as well. Uh, I, the, the university of Washington press has really moved to engage with authors who are not in academia and to have books that are like mine, where it's really someone who's passionate about a subject and uh, does the research. I mean, the book it has, I don't know, 25, 30 pages of endnotes at the end. So the, I feel that the history is rigorous, but the writing is less from an academic point of view. Not that that's good or bad. It's just that's not what I'm doing. And more from uh, that in, trying to again reach people through uh, those those stories of place. Yeah, and and you can or, or I I caught the fact that there there was like you know rigor and there was research in in the book itself and there wasn't just you know it it it, it did come off in in that way as well. So I I, I it, it felt very successful and it's 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 neat that the University of Washington Press is is reaching out farther and and kind of on that note, I, could you tell us a little bit about the book of just how you came to write it, how you how you arrived at this spot? Yeah, yeah, that's a. A question that for me is always fun to to address. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, I've mostly focused on Seattle-based stories and mostly focused on stories directly tied to the land, looking at it through some of these big geological stories. But growing up on Puget Sound, for those of you who aren't familiar with Puget Sound, it's that body of water that uh, is between the Olympic Mountains and the Cascade Mountains in western Washington connects out through the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is just below Vancouver Island, British Columbia, out to the Pacific Ocean. And I've lived here for, as I said, for most of my life, and I'd never really thought about the water per se and the lives of the plants and animals connected to the water and the lives of the people connected to the water. So I one day just really had this idea like, okay, I'm going, I'm interested in writing a book about human and natural history of Puget Sound, this area that I've lived in and intend to, to reside in for the rest of my life. Where do I go? So what I ended up doing was spending about five months reaching out to people, to biologists, to historians, to tribal members, to friends, and ask them, what would you? What do you think is important? What are the human and natural history stories of this place that you think help people understand it, help people develop those connections? And so through that, I ended up narrowing down the topic, seeing where, where things sort of connected together. 
uh, and leading to the stories that I came up with. And as I was working on it, one of the parts of the story that stood out for me, and anyone who lives in this region knows that the two iconic animals are really groups of animals, salmon, of which there's five species, and orca, or killer whales, of which there's two very distinct and different populations. Uh, those are the charismatic animals. Those are the animals that, that most people know, the stories are written about. And I knew that I wanted to focus on the species that got less attention, but that I felt were critical to understanding the story. And this, again, was based on talking in particular to biologists, but also in talking to uh, tribal members to try and understand what were the cultural connections? How did herring play out in for the indigenous people here? What was the relationship with kelp for the indigenous people? Always wanting to know not just the biology, but also that, that human connection to whatever species I focused on. And so it was out of that uh, interest in this place and interest in the water and in a place that I knew, but realized I really didn't know in the deeper way that I always want to know a place. And that's what led down the path to this book. That sounds like such a fantastic journey. And, and to kind of go off of that idea about, about, about just understanding and, and knowing place. And in, in chapter one, you talk about that, how there's a fundamental truth about place names and, and how T.T. Um, Wal- Waterman um, back in 1922 recorded like 10,000 names for for Puget Sound. So I, I don't know, would you want to talk a little bit about your, your encountering different names and, and what that means to, to this area? Yeah, yeah. I've long been interested in names of place. I, and to me, that is often a great way to do the, the natural history part. Um, I've of, often focused on scientific names and you know, what, what do those mean? But place names have a similar storyline, a, a similar background to a, a place like Puget Sound. Uh, for example, the, the longest name that we have, longest known name is from Lushootse, which is the, the native language of the sound. And for, for in that language, it means the salt and it was less of a cartographic or a geographic name for an area and more of a relationship name that we are of the salt. We find our connection to place through the salt. And in fact, they thought people who lived on the freshwater up away, further away from Puget Sound were sort of less refined uh, people, which I think is sort of fun. And then as, as going back to Waterman and you look at Waterman's place names that he, that he uh, recorded, so many of those place names are based on a relationship, a long-term relationship with a place. Here's a good place to find a certain type of fish, or here's a place name that is referenced to how the wind blows across an area, or a place to avoid in winter because of bad currents, or to take advantage of in summer because there's good fish to be found. So these, these are the very deep names. In contrast with Puget Sound, the name comes from the first European explorer to sail down into this body of water. And in May of 1792, he sends one of his lieutenants, a man named Peter Puget, 
south to explore the, the body of water in two small boats. His, the, the main boat was too big. And Puget returns back to uh, the vessel. And Vancouver writes in his journal to honor his exertions. I named this Puget's Sound. And one thing that really struck me about that is the use of the possessive S, Puget's Sound. And it really was, to me, uh, a way of expressing ownership, that the British were claiming this place. In fact, they had just a few days before, a few days after, I forget exactly when, they name a sound possession sound in honor of taking possession of this place. And we see many of these names still on the landscape, Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, uh, the two big volcanic peaks around here, lots of controversy whether those names should be restored back to the, the Lachutzid or other native groups who could see the mountains, their names. And then we see in the northern part of the sound, Spanish names, Lopez Island, Harrow Strait, the San Juans. And growing up here, I had certainly never heard anything about Spanish exploration in this area. But as you look and see the names, there's a clear sign. The Spanish actually were the first Europeans to sail down the Strait of Juan de Fuca. They didn't make the right turn down into Puget Sound, but left many names on the landscape. And then we see the American names start to arrive when citizens from the U.S. arrive and put their names on the land. The British, uh, after Vancouver, they're the first settlers in this area. Their names are on the land. So it's this interesting combination of Spanish, British, explorer, American, Lachutzid, and, and, and native names in places that, to me, really paint this you know, just a, a very rich story of human history. And to me, names are one of the simplest ways. And, and, and we compare that, say, with modern names, where it's often, we've all seen housing developments, you know, Eagle Ridge or Cougar <laughs> Mountain. And it's usually in reference to the animals that they were getting rid of, displacing so they could build homes. And just a, a different way to relate to land, and, and, but also a fundamental way to understand people's connections to place. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm really interested in property, and and so like the way that that names work to assign or or possess a property is is super fascinating, and it, it this was really illustrative of of how that especially that colonial heritage or legacy really shines through when when we look at these places and 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 these these names, and then I I, I feel like also it. it later on in, in your book, especially this, this also, this, this idea of ownership and property, you know, moves not only from the landscape to the, uh, to, to resources as well. And we, we can touch on that a little bit later, but, um, kind of going back to, to this, this, this whole history to, to bring in the, uh, the natural with the, um, with the human, your, uh, your second chapter, birth of a place talks about the, the modern geology and, how how the landscape is is actually really young it's only like 600,000 years old which in you know geographical time isn't isn't a lot would you like to to talk more on that yeah yeah um, I, I, as i said geology writer um, i see the world through geology and and no matter what book i write i'm always going to bring in the geology because it's it's such an interesting subject but here it's particularly 
important. Uh, we look at the volcanoes that are around the, uh, the sound, Rainier and Mount St. Helens and Baker and such, and all of them are very young, as you say, under about 600,000 years in age. But the real critical story, geologic story, is the last ice age, which starts um, in this area. We have a big sheet of ice that moves uh, south out of Canada between the Olympic and the Cascade Mountains around 17,000 years ago, and it it flows south, moves south through Seattle, then, then through Tacoma, and then through Olympia, which is at the south end of the Sound, which is about 60 miles or so south of Seattle. And it makes it just a little bit past there and then retreats or melts back to the north so that by about 15,500 years ago, roughly 16,000, the ice has retreated far enough that that connection back to the open ocean opens again and, the, and Puget Sound becomes a saltwater body. But it's that geological story that is really critical because the way the sound is formed is not actually due to ice flowing across the land. It's water flowing under the ice that excavates down into the sediments below and carves out Puget Sound. And you know the the sound is incredibly deep. It's 900 feet deep at its deepest spot, with an average of of about 200 feet. And you compare that to places like Chesapeake Bay or San Francisco Bay, which are you know nothing like that. You know they're in they're measured in you know 20, 30, 40, 50 feet of water um, compared with 900. So with that depth, you have a very uh, a lots of spaces for diversity for animals to fill niches. But you also have a, uh, an aspect of the story where as that water carves, it will sometimes hit harder layers in the sediment below and doesn't excavate down as much, doesn't carve it as much. And you leave behind what geologists refer to as sills or little ridges. And what's important for that is it's, it, that then affects how water moves through the sound. Each with the tidal change as the water flows in, the water flows out, it gets circulated and you have nutrients circulate, you have uh, toxins circulate. So it's uh, at larvae recirculated because of that. So to understand some of the stories of this place, it really helps to understand the geology. So that for me is always, uh, excuse the pun, a really key way to ground the beginning of a book looking at place is with the geology. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so interesting, and and obviously the the water cycle it, later on in in your book it it shows how how much that's how how important that is to to the cultivation of the ecosystem and and how how all of the the critters um, in the in the sound um, adapted and evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but to to kind of shift us back to to the people, um, I noticed in the in the first footnote of chapter three where titled uh peopling puget sound you you decided to go on um accounts based uh, uh, off of archaeological materials opposed to, to native oral traditions who who are always there in the area um, and 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 that's the uh that that's the belief and i think it's really important to to make that distinction and make that acknowledgement but i i was just curious and and i think probably your science background has somewhat to do with this but how did you come to that decision and and was it was it a tough one to make 
Yeah, I I think your observation your your sort of observation that it really gets down to my science background. I see the world through a scientific lens, and certainly do not uh, disqualify in any way the 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 belief system of native people of this area of since basically living here since time immemorial. But writing the book in the style that I wanted, I felt I needed to rely on the archaeological evidence to, uh, again, give that book the grounding that I was trying to uh, develop. And again, it, it was just a different take. And it was a take that I felt more comfortable with. It was a take that I felt I was more equipped as a writer to incorporate those stories. Um, and th- again, not that those are the right stories. Those are just the way I told to tell them. Yeah. And, and, and it really shows the, the complexities of, of these these different heritages and, and legacies within within this area, and and I I do appreciate that that you you were able to to bring both both sides throughout the book forward, though even though you are taking this one stance, and and later on, I mean, it, it's just it's so interesting. I do want to talk about the early kind of like history of of how humans interacted in this landscape after you know uh whenever that may have been right yeah yeah and that was as you point out something i was felt very strongly about um for so long in books about the history of puget sound often begin with the basic line in may of 1792 george vancouver discovered puget sound well you know, he discovered it about 12,000 years after other people had already been here, living here that entire time. So I knew I didn't want to write a book like that. And so reaching out to archaeologists and trying to to understand the archaeological evidence, uh, the oldest site is just on the uh, east side of Lake Washington. Redmond happens to be pretty close to where Microsoft is, their headquarters are as a play space. And it's uh, stone tools were found and evidence showing that people were there for probably 1,000, 2,000 years and a very different landscape than what we have now, particularly from an uh, ecological condition, ecosystem condition, that what we have now, the very dense temperate rainforest dominated by uh, three big trees, Douglas fir, western red cedar and western hemlock, back then post ice age only a couple thousand years since the ice had retreated. And it was a much more open landscape. And in talking to archaeologists and being inspired by them, the observation that the people who lived here, um, the indigenous, the native people, had, like anybody, superbly adapted to place. They, They, and evolved over time. As climate changed, we see changes in technologies, we see changes in foods that they're using, uh, but it was it was that idea that they had adapted to a place and were able to live here in a way that was not terribly detrimental to the landscape. Certainly, they did some landscape change. We have we have lots of evidence of fire 
technology being used. We have evidence of them building what are called um, clam gardens, where they build up little walls on the uh, tidal line to, to enhance habitat for the clams, the use of middens, the, the, the big shell heaps that, uh, that changed the landscape. So certainly they altered landscape, but they were still able to live in a way that was sustainable for thousands and thousands of years. And that for many people, me, me not alone, certainly is inspiring to think about how do you live in a place with sustainability? And you can see that through the archaeological record. A lot of work has been done, but that really was, to me, a very strong contrast to what happens when European settlers start to come in. And we see a fundamental change in the relationship between people and place from stewardship, sustainability, to really to exploitation of the natural resources, Uh, first beginning with oysters, but then quickly going to trees, to salmon, to herring, uh, you know, all sorts of species. And that to me was a big, a, a big story I wanted to tell and think about what, is it, what does that mean? And then how is it changing now in more recent times? Uh, I think there's been a big change in, in people's perception of place. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and and one thing you point out, it's a little bit later in the book, but um, the the size of the indigenous populations were, were a lot larger than than we, we usually give them credit for, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in this area of, you know, not just Puget Sound, but Puget Sound is a good example. I mean, just an incredible wealth of resources here for you know, food in particular, just bounty of an unimaginable quantity with, with salmon, with shellfish, uh, with other fish in the water that you really could survive here pretty easily. And that allowed the populations to grow um, in this area. You know, it's obviously well aware, very temperate. We just, it doesn't get that hot and it just doesn't get that cold in this area. And those the indigenous people did well until about the 1780s when unfortunately smallpox arrived. There's some debate as to actually how it arrived, but when it did, we know the results with you know, just you know wholesale deaths um, anywhere between maybe 30 to 90% of the population and, and most likely in that upper numbers, 70, 80, 90% of the population died with smallpox in just a handful of years. So that was a, that was such a fundamental change too in the landscape. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's it's really interesting to kind of jump to your uh, to to chapter five the the maritime her- the Mar- maritime highway where where you're able to to build in the indigenous perspective as well as more of a of a modern day perspective with um, with watercraft and. And being able to to navigate the sound, um, and and uh, I guess you you call it um, values of of life on the water and and, and building community. It, um, it's is there are, are there parallels there between you know the, these different cultural experiences and and just experience of navigating the water? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that chapter was a one. It was just a fun chapter to work on because. <laughs> Um, I got to get out in the field quite a bit for that. And, you know, you th- the again, thinking about how Puget Sound is 
special, if you will. Um, I, again, it's one of these bodies of water that is relatively benign. Again, compare the the sound as a waterway for navigation to the uh, you know, Gulf of Mexico. We, you know, we just don't have the harsh weather conditions. We don't get hurricanes. It doesn't get that hot. We don't have bugs along the northeastern seaboard. We don't get nor'easters. Compare that, the entrance to Puget Sound through what's called Admiralty Inlet, a very easy um, navigational spot with the Columbia River just south of here, 100 miles or so south, the mouth of the Columbia River, arguably one of the most dangerous uh, spots on earth um, in, the, in, in the sea. The number of people have lost there is in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people have been lost at the mouth. So the sound is really an ideal place to move by watercraft, in part also because it's so hard to go through the forest. Uh, the, the temperate rainforests are some of the den densest ecosystems on earth. So it's not easy to go from point A to point B. But if you had a, if you had a watercraft, you could. And for the first, uh, at least last 5,000 years, it's some, the, there's some issues there. Um, canoes were the primary means, were really the only means of, of watercraft travel in the waterway. And as you said, to me, it was the canoe provided a way to knit together community. People could go anywhere they want pretty easily. They could meet with, trade with, connect, intermarry uh, because of that canoe and, and that ease of which to travel and, and move people and goods. That changes in the 1830s when we have the arrival of the first steamship in Puget Sound. And out of that steamship grows what's known as the Mosquito Fleet. And this is a, art of, uh, a collection, if you will, or an armada of small vessels, well, actually all sized from 19 feet to 300 feet, that mostly privately owned. And they were sort of the Uber driver, UPS truck, bank, uh, general store, gossip spreader of the era. And they went everywhere in Puget Sound. I spent some time coming up with a list of named of named Mosquito Fleet docking points. And it's something like 350 points within this sort of bigger Puget Sound region. So again, you could live anywhere and connect to a larger community. You were part of that big ecosystem of Puget Sound as long as you're on the waterway. You, you had a little pier that went out into the water or you had a rowboat, you could row out and meet the mosquito fleet that would allow you to live where you wanted. And as I say, still stay connected. And then in 19, then with the rise of the automobile, we see the loss, the mosquito fleet dies and we have the rise of the ferry system, which Washington state takes over in 19. 50. And, and one of my goals and why I said it was fun to write that chapter is I wrote all the ferries in the sound, a bunch I didn't even know existed until I started to work on the book. But the highlight for me was time I spent with a uh, ferry captain named Marsha Morse. And she said to me, I think one of the more profound statements I heard about this area and particularly involved with watercraft, she said, I grew up in Eastern Washington and I was used to the big open views of Eastern Washington. And 
if you in the sound, we don't have those as much. The forests are dense. You go hiking, you don't get those big views. But out on the water, you have the big views. There's a spiritual connection to place by being out on the water with those big vistas and the chance to encounter wildlife, to see uh, whales, to see orcas in the sound is pretty amazing. And it really hit home that this body of water and the idea of the maritime highway is both very utilitarian, but also very spiritual. And it it just exemplifies to me sort of part of the, of the story of this place, of that, that relationship between your sort of deep love for a landscape and your the, the practical aspects of it. And the, the Maritime Highway, to me, was just a fun way to explore that concept. Yeah, I imagine that was fun just to be able to, to go around and meet all of those captains and and, and really explore the, the sound in, in that way on the water. But it's also interesting that, that you didn't realize that there were some of those there until you, you did the research, which kind of highlights a lot of the, the, the factors of invisibility that seem to kind of come out, especially in the natural side of things, where you have something like the herring being the gatekeeper of energy flow. Um, and But then you have all of these toxins coming into into the water and, and being found in their tissue and, and how that can affect the... Uh, the whole ecology of the of the sound. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting that idea of invisibility, and and I think it was one of the things that uh, inspired me to write the book because, as I say in the book, yeah, I think for many of us, and I certainly include myself, when I look out over Puget Sound, I see this beautiful blue body of water, and I don't see the sur- I don't see what's underneath the surface. And it's when you dive down under, sort of metaphorically, and for those who do it physically, you discover this incredible array of life down there. And that array of life is not only the fish and the marine mammals, but as you point out, also the toxins that we are putting into the water that we contribute every day. You know, we drive a car and the gasoline runoff, the oil runoff, the we apply our brakes and the copper runoff, uh, flushing pharmaceuticals down the toilet. Uh, you know, this is coffee culture. So all of us are contributing our excess coffee back into the system. So we have an, again, to me, what it gets down to is that all of us have an effect on this ecosystem. And in some ways it is more visible. And as you point out, Matt, in some ways it is uh, more invisible but it's still happening around us. And I was, again, trying to, to reveal those, share those stories. Yeah, yeah. And, and one really interesting thing you, you point out in the book, especially as you start getting out into the, the water with a lot of um, wildlife biologists and, and, and OC, uh, 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 aquatic biologists, I suppose, um, are, are also how, how different these animals are in comparison of their their life cycles and and things like that like do you want to talk a little bit about about the experience of the rockfish yeah yeah that that's a great one the rockfish are such a great story and rockfish are one of those groups of fish that sort of like salmon you know people say oh salmon like well there's okay there's five species actually there's seven seven in the genus that salmon are in, but in the rockfish case, there are 27 
species in the genus that makes makes up our local population. So incredibly diverse, but so always spoken of as sort of generically rockfish. And what biologists realized is that they had a fundamental misunderstanding of a central aspect of the life of rockfish. And it goes back to the way biologists and also many people see the world in this area is through a a salmon colored lens that so many of the actions that are taken from a management point of view focus on understandably salmon. They're central ecologically, they're central culturally to people. But salmon are very different from rockfish. Salmon have a very short lifespan, uh, two to three years, up to seven or eight or nine years. And so how you manage a fish like that is very different than how you manage a fish like rockfish. The rockfish species in the sound can live 70, 80, 100, 150. The oldest known rockfish was 205 years old. So your managements can be very different. And we didn't understand that. Uh, One of the big uh, law decisions in Washington state is known as the Bolt Bolt decision of 1974, which restored the treaty rights of Native people to have half the fish that are harvested in the sound. And because of that, it led to the Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife changing how they promoted fish. They really tried to push people into uh, catching rockfish, and they didn't understand the biology of rockfish. And it led to a drastic uh, downturn in the population to the point now that two of the species are on the, the threatened and endangered list of endangered species. And those fish need a very different management regime. They need a regime that allows not just a couple of years of recovery, but decades of recovery. With a salmon, it returns from, depending on the species, two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years back and lays eggs. And the next generation can begin pretty soon after, within a couple of years. But with rockfish, they may take decades to reproduce and it takes them a while to get to that point. You know, it's a 15, 20 year old rockfish, more like a human. They need to be of that age before they can start reproducing. And then once they start reproducing, they don't reproduce on a regular basis. They wait for good years. So it's a much, much different story of management based on that life history, as you said. How, how we uh, understand that life history is really central to how we manage. And we're learning, biologists are learning much better how these different species live what their life histories are in the sound. Yeah. And, and going off of that, one of the, one of the really interesting things that caught my eye was the, uh, the NOAA bycatch project that, that was trying to, to, um, reduce or figure out how to reduce the, the, the bycatch, which are, I don't know. Do you want to explain what bycatch are? Yeah. So bycatch is when you plan on catching say lingcod, which is a bottom dwelling species and you end up catching rockfish, which is also a bottom-dwelling species. 
So the rockfish would be considered bycatch. And one of the problems is, is that when people go out to catch lingcod, they catch rockfish instead. And that is problematic in terms of how rockfish, these, particularly these bottom dwellers, if they're brought back up to the surface, they don't do very well at the surface as the air pressure, gas pressure ch- changes in them. They can't adapt to being brought rapidly up to the surface. Um, so one of the studies that, that um, NOAA is doing, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is to go out and test different ways of fishing for lingcod to avoid catching the rockfish. And I was lucky enough to go out in the field a couple times with uh, the federal biologist who was in charge of that. And just really to see firsthand as they were catching rockfish, it's illegal to catch rockfish in, in, in the waters of Puget Sound now, but to see them, to see what the science is, to see how that will help inform management of these fish was pretty fun. Did, did you ever hold one of those rockfish? I did. I got to hold them. I got to see <laughs> them. Um, there's some, there are fish you don't really, I didn't really want to spend a lot of time around because um, <laughs> they have these really long spines and they are, um, it can be a rather painful, uh, I mean, the, the biologist who's where had the, the, who was working with them had these very thick, thick rubber gloves on uh, and knew what he was doing. So, I was mostly looking um, less of, of avoiding being touched. <laughs> <laughs> that's still that's still really neat that you're able to to go out and 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 I mean I, I think that really speaks to the book because you're you're present throughout this 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 narrative that you're telling, especially with with the biology and 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 with the with the transportation. And one beautiful quote that that I that really stuck out to me was um, in chapter nine. Every 12 hours, the sound inhales and exhales, covering and uncovering a beautiful evanescence world at the intersection of land and water. And um, this kind of set up uh, your, your conversation on, on uh, oysters and, and mollusks. Um, but I don't, why, why is tide so important to, to the sound? Yeah, I mean, that, that was really fun. And, and, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, for me, it was, you know, so what that was based on was sitting one day and watching the tide go in and t- tide go out over a you know, 12, roughly 12 hour period. And the several aspects of it, one was the sort of fundamental aspect of connection to place and seeing the incredible dynamic of the landscape. And again, what do we miss? What don't we see? Is that sat where I was sitting on the shore? It reveals about a quarter mile of of habitat that gets opened up when the tide is out, and the incredible life that's out there, the incredible array of organisms, was just amazing to see, and and really helped further deepen my connection to place. But the tide is also important because it's moving nutrients in. It's it's stirring up the water, as we said, as I said at the very beginning, this creating this circulation of nutrients, circulation of oxygen, circulation of toxins. And so it's really essential to this body of water. Um, it also is important because we have pretty, pretty decent tidal change at the north end of the sound. It's about eight to 10 feet and in the south end. It's 15 to 20 feet. And that tide change, you know, affects what the erosion rates, and we're certainly seeing that, and we're going to continue to see it with changes in sea level. 
in this area. So to understand the tide helps understand uh, what's, hap- what's going to happen in the future, um, particularly with sea level change. But it, it's just a central part of the story of the sound. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, that, it, and it was a really cool, cool part of the book, just in terms of being able to, to contemplate and, and, and reflect on, on the powers of these systems. Um, I mean, and, and now we got to talk about oyster mania and mollusk madness after talking <laughs> about the tides, right? Yeah, I mean, that, I, I knew nothing about oysters. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big fan of eating them. And I know people love them, but it really was, it was interesting. As I said, again, said earlier, that was really the first industry, uh, certainly the first uh, water-based industry in Puget Sound. We have a native oyster called the Olympia oyster. They're oh, about the size of a silver dollar, uh, very flavorful and were incredibly popular. And at one point, you know, oysters were the food. I mean, it's amazing. I, I forget what the statistic is, but the hundreds of millions and millions of oysters that people would consume in this country. I mean, it was the thing. I mean, in Washington state, it was so oysters were so important that it affected state laws on being able to own tideland. Most uh, coastal places, you can't own the tidelands, but Washington, you could because of oysters and, and the hope by passing a law that allowed people to farm oysters and allowed them to own the land that it would lead towards to more farming of oysters. I mean, it was that important of of uh, product of natural resource for this area, and it continued up until the time that we decimated it. Uh, we now have a, a big oyster population again, but they're non-native oysters. They're they're the Pacific oysters, and and most people I when I've talked to them, they didn't even realize that the Pacific oyster was not native. They're so widespread and ubiquitous in the sound at this point. So that was one part of the story. And the other is the, the, the mollusk madness, or in reference really primarily to the gooey duck. Um, for those people who aren't familiar with them, gooey ducks are a clam, and they have a shell that's, oh, size of a, maybe they can be as big as, say, a small Nerf ball, seven, eight inches long. And unlike many clams, they can't close their shell completely, and the neck of that clam sticks out and there's really no other word for it except phallic. Um, it is a, if you, it, yeah, it's so obvious. They, and, but gooey ducks are really interesting because it's one of the few seed names we have for an animal in this area. Gooey duck means to dig deep. They were historically harvested uh, as an intertidal organism. So at very low tides, you would go out and you people would ferociously dig to catch this animal. They would be about two to three feet buried in the deep into the mud. Their neck would extend up that long to the surface, and they would basically feed through that. Uh, but then in the 1960s, divers discovered that, that Guiduck lived subtidally down to 300 feet deep in Puget Sound, um, in water 300 feet deep. And it's really changed the dynamic. We now, there is a huge market and industry of harvesting gooey duck through divers. And I was, again, being able to go out in the field, lucky enough to go out with a group of native divers as they were diving down and pulling up these gooey duck 
Um, they have all sorts of tools they use to do it, bring them up to the surface and then package them. And they were in China the next day, put on a plane immediately. Uh, but those two groups, the oyster and the gooey duck really personified to me one of the central stories I tried to tell. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. Oysters, people came in and, and, ex, and exploited them. And it's really that early, that's really the early story, story of the sound is exploitation to the point of uh, decimation and driving populations down so low that you can't, they're not uh, financially harvestable. Gooey duck, in, in, in contrast, is all about sustainability and stewardship, heavily managed population of, of animals. Uh, whatever is harvested is done in a manner so that they understand, they, they know the biology, and it's done in a, in a sustainable manner. And an area that gets harvested will then be unharvestable for 20, 30, 40 years until the gooey duck population has recovered. That's because gooey duck, like rockfish, can live for 70, 80, the 100. The oldest one was 100 and I think 73 years old when uh, it was uh, a biologist dug it up and, and was able to count the, the rings on it. So they're just a, they're a really fascinating story of the sound, of the human connection to the natural resources and as it, how it's played out over the thousands of years, and, in, and particularly how it's played out over the last 170 years of post-European post settlement. Yeah, and, and, and that kind of just all of the things you said there, especially about the exploitation and and kind of the the, the, the decimation of, of different populations, both human and like non-human. Um, like throughout the book, one thing I, I, I noticed that, that you, you kept asking is like, are we too late? Um, <laughs> and and I, I, I guess like my question is, why is that question important to this story? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's an interesting way to phrase it, Matt. The I to think about it. So again, it gets back to this this change in relationship between people and place from the early first century, really, if you will, of post-European settlement of exploitation to what I think dominates now is primarily a relationship based on sustainability and stewardship. And asking that question, is it too late, is important because if it is too late, then you know we really need to fundamentally change how we do everything here. And you could probably argue we do fundamentally need to change many things we do here to, to better reflect the changing fortunes of the species. But this, again, gets back to the, the life history question that you asked earlier and thinking about how have various species adapted and evolved in this place over the last 15,000 years or so. And the species say, such as herring, which is just, there's one species here, but there are a variety of different stocks as the managers call them. And those stocks in different locations produce, have different times of their reproduction. So earlier in the year, certain groups are 
you're going to see reproduction other groups later in the year. Um, Olympia oysters, a similar one species, but very well adapted to a specific cove or a specific section of water. Salmon, the same way, the five species, each of them have very different life histories. And again, how they have adapted over the thousands of years. And the biologists refer to this idea of this portfolio effect, that just as if you have a diverse portfolio, financial portfolio, if you have a diverse life history portfolio, excuse me, it helps give you a resilience to change. And these species have been adapting for thousands of years and developing this resilience. And I sort of think of it as the, the place of Puget Sound sort of runs in the veins of these animals. And if we can give them the chance, if we've not push them beyond the point of being too late. If we give them that chance, that potential resides in them. And the example I often use is of the Elwha Dam dams. This is out on the Strait of Juan de Fuca, sort of part of the greater Puget Sound region. But those two dams, which were taken down in the, in the 2010s, the, when the dams are taken down, salmon return almost immediately to that waterway and start heading back up that waterway. And one of the biologists I talked to put it this way. He said they were able to do that because they've had barriers placed before them for thousands of years, landslides, ice, whatever it might be, earthquakes changing things. They have adapted and that's become part of their DNA. And I think, and I had, you know, you notice several people said, we're not too late. We have that potential exists We just need to give them the opportunity. We need to give them the chance to do that. And that, to me, is uh, an essential part of the story and ultimately one part that gives me hope. Um, And that, for me, was another key aspect of the story that I did come away from this book, writing this book, despite all the negatives, I still came away with hope for a better future for Puget Sound. And and I don't mean hope in the sort of wishy-washy way, but I mean hope in the way that we can work towards it. We have to work toward it. It's going to take money. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take change. It's going to take courage. But I think because of many of the things that have changed and we've talked about, that that hope is there and that potential is there for a better sound. And the, the classic line, Wallace Stegner's line of a society to match the scenery. I think it, I think that potential is growing and has been growing in the sound over time. Wow! Well, thank you so much for that uh, comprehensive answer and and <laughs> just just really wrapping it up well in terms of kind of a good call to action or, or takeaway um, from from what your what your overall project really really represents and. Um, thank you so much for being on on the show today, and and we've taken up so much of your time. But but before we go, I I would like to ask you our our traditional final question. Um, what what's next? What are you working on now? Yeah. Uh, oh, first, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. At this point, I'm bouncing around a couple ideas. I'm thinking of doing something that ties into climate change. Um, again, locally, I several years ago, decided that as a writer, I wanted to almost exclusively focus on 
local regional stories. I didn't want to try and write um, as much about areas where I don't live, where I don't know the landscape as well, don't know the stories, don't know the people. So thinking of something that tied, ties into climate change out here, uh, we're at an, uh, we're a very interesting place, the Puget Lowland uh, for climate change in part because we have some, again, some resiliency built in, but we also have some advantages of, in terms of the tidal issues, the temperature issues um, here. So I'm, I'm thinking of ways to explore that story. Cool. That sounds, I mean, that sounds like a really neat project, especially building off of what you've, what you've done here. Um, so I would definitely recommend everybody to go check out Home Waters, a human and natural history of Puget Sound by David B. Williams, uh, published by the University of Washington Press in 2021. And, and David, did you want to uh, give uh, give your uh, website out one more time too? Yeah, that'd be great. So the website is geologywriter.com and there's everything about me on it from my newsletter to other books I've done to how to buy books. Cool, cool. Well, I, I hope everybody goes and checks that out. And, and thank you once again for, for being on the show. My pleasure.